Welcome to the Well Season Librarian Podcast. I'm Dean Jones, your host. This is Season 9, Episode 18. Today I'm talking with author Douglas Weissman. I really enjoyed talking to Douglas. He was one of those people that I just um, immediately fell in like with and just really loved talking to him. And it was such an easy conversation. I was kind of like reluctant to let it go. And I think we talked for like a good 20 minutes after we stopped recording. We talked for a good while before recording. So it was a very effortless uh, interview. I almost feel like it was just more of uh, two friends chatting instead of an interview. But I had a great time talking to Douglas. And he's a really wonderful writer. He so generously sent me a copy of his uh, book, Life Between Seconds. And I was really happy he did because um, it was a really wonderful, uplifting, poignant book. And just it had a, some great examples of wonderful writing in it. I uh, can't talk about it enough. And we have a link to it in the, in the bio, by the way, so you can get your own copy. Douglas is a graduate of the Master of Fine Arts programs in creative writing at the University of San Francisco. He is an award-winning travel writer, and he's published eight novels spanning young adult and new adult and adult genres. He lives in Los Angeles with his gorgeous wife, fun-loving daughter, anxious dog, and indifferent cat. By the time you read this, he'll probably have another cat. I really enjoyed talking to Douglas, so I'm going to go ahead and take you to our conversation right now. And I got to say, too, he looks just like Paul Rudd. It's really weird because I felt like I was interviewing Paul Rudd. Here we go. Welcome to the Well Season Librarian podcast. I'm your host, Dean Jones. Today, I'm very excited to be talking with author Douglas Weissman, who is a graduate of the Master of Fine Arts programs in creative writing at the University of San Francisco. His latest novel, Light Between Seconds, was released November 15th, 2022. Douglas, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. Happy to be here. Thank you. At what point in your life did you decide, you know what, I think I'm going to be a writer? Did you just have an epiphany or did you wrestle with it? I wrestled with it. I think there were three major points in my life when I made the decision or at least knew that that's what I liked doing. Uh, the first time was in second grade. I wrote a story and my teacher thought it was hilarious and had me read it in front of the class. And I really enjoyed it, but I never thought about being a writer. And then again, when I got to college and I was thinking, what can I do with my life? And what do I want to do with my life? But I also pushed it away because of course the critic is like, well, that's not a career. You're never going to make any money doing that. And then after I was finally committed to it, kind of the end of my university career. And I was like, okay, I'm going to apply for MFA programs. I'm going to commit to writing. And that was in about 2008, 2009, when I finally decided that that's what I was going to do. You just finished and I put out your newest adult novel. Can you tell us a little bit about your non-adult novels in writing? Yeah. So I have a YA series called Deep Freeze, and it looks at a group of orphans from San Diego and the path they take after an apocalyptic event, a post-apocalyptic event, where they then find a cruise ship and try to escape their lot in life, right, and see if they can kind of start anew. And it was actually a book package, and they came to me with the idea, an editor, a publisher came to me with the idea, and I just fleshed it out took it out over six different books to see where I could take it, where all these characters went. And it was a really great learning experience for me, uh, especially in how to write to a deadline. And when every book, so there were six books and I basically had six weeks to complete the first draft of every book and then another two weeks to do a revision per book. And so it was basically two months 
per book total to to have it completely done. And it was very exciting. It was definitely a whirlwind. And then I also have Bad Connections, which was actually a larger series where they had six different authors do one book each, just in terms of the concept having a focus on freshman year of college and whatever you could think of. And I kind of modeled after my freshman year where I went to a commuter school. I mean, I loved my school, but it was very close. I grew up to it. I grew up close to it. So it was always someplace that I never thought of as an actual good school, even though it has great programs. Uh, and it also has very aggressive squirrels. And so I put that <laughs> into the story thinking like, well, this is just silly. But I, I liked that after writing such deep and kind of dark content with the YA series, it's all about, you know, kind of Lord of the Flies-esque, how do you survive in a post-apocalyptic world, especially when you're a teenager? It was kind of fun to look at this really silly aspect of life with going to college with these aggressive squirrels always chasing you when you're trying to pass the quad. Are they gray squirrels by any chance? No, no, they're brown squirrels. They are, but they're just so, they're, they're brazen. And no, I've experienced brazen squirrels before. They yeah. can be little bastards. That's exactly it. I mean, if you have a bag of chips, they will not hesitate stealing that bag of chips out of your hands. They are just habituated to people and they, I mean, there's apocrypha of like them falling from the trees and jumping on your head. I never saw that happen, but I wouldn't doubt it because those little bastards are hilarious as long as it's happening to someone else. We had a uh, squirrel that was a real um, bully that, that was living near us and we called him Don Squirrelione. <laughs> That's so great. My wife loves squirrels and she like leaves peanuts for them in our trees and things. And I think that I need to start naming them names like that. You have a new book out and it's um, I'm very excited to talk about it with you. Um, Life Between Seconds. Now, to our listeners who have not um, heard about the book yet, can you tell us a little bit about the premise for the book? 100%. Uh, Life Between Seconds is about an unlikely friendship between a 70-something-year-old Argentinian woman and a 20-something-year-old American guy and how their friendship actually saves them from their past traumas. It's a really deep look at friendship, about found family, about how traveling can work as both an escape and heal. And it's also about the way that we kind of run from our nightmares, expecting that to save us, but then at the same time, realizing that we grow around grief at times and are unable to think of our lives outside of that grief. Like, who are we if we heal? Life Between Seconds was inspired by your travels, and we're going to circle back to that in a bit around the world. Can you talk a little bit about um, how this book was inspired by, by your travels? Yeah, so I have been to 48 countries, and my goal is to get to 50 countries by the time I'm 40, so I still have a little bit of time. But the big thing was that every time I would travel, I would experience something new. I would experience a new connection with a stranger, and when I was in... Argentina, I watched the Madres de la Plaza de Mayo, which were a group of women who were marching in silence, holding up signs or holding up pictures, demanding information about their husbands, their sons, their daughters, their uncles, family relations, or even friends that were disappeared during the dirty war in Argentina, where up to 30,000 people were disappeared. And including including grandchildren who they would wait, the government would wait until a pregnant mother gave birth and then they would 
murder the mother, but give the baby to a, a government official or a military, a member of the military. And they're still finding out who might have been a part of that, like which children may have not known that their parents were not really their parents. And it just really inspired me talking to them, seeing this really powerful moment. I just had this deep connection, especially coming from the Jewish community and, and always hearing stories of the Holocaust. And now here's kind of this different perspective, different lens, different aspect of life that I never knew about and then I'm learning about and wanted to kind of bring that story of pain and struggle, but also perseverance and courage to the forefront. And then there was another point when I was in Mexico City and I was visiting Frida Kahlo's house and she has two clocks in her house, one stuck on the time where she divorced Diego Rivera and another one when she remarried him. And I thought that was just in such a unique way to look at life that two clocks frozen in time like and that was the memory or those were the memories that she wanted to to look at and so that also inspired just kind of this weird cork of a character and what it would look like if they used frozen clocks instead of pictures i love that i love that uh, imagery i kept (laughs) thinking that the characters seemed very real to me and I, th- I thought it had a very cinematic quality. I mean, I, I hasten to say, because I don't know how you feel about this, but it would make a great Netflix series. I could see it being very adaptable to screenplay because it's very, like, got a movement to it. There's, like, a visceral movement to it. Now, was anyone that you know, was anybody in life in, um, in between seconds based on anybody that you know in real life? So, first of all, thank you for saying that you could visualize it and it would make a great limited series. Uh, When I wrote it, I was thinking, how can I make this so impossible to film that it would never be able to become that? (laughs) But then as I was getting closer to publication, I was thinking, wow, this would make a really good, a really good show. But part of that is also because of when I started writing it, those limited series didn't really exist much. But then when it started getting, when it got closer to publication and limited series, you know, just one eight to 10 part series, and then it was over, was more normal. And I realized this would be great. This would work really well. And I even had visions of how it could work. And I definitely modeled characters after people I know, but they're not wholly after people I know. It's bits and pieces. So for instance, Sophia, the, the main female protagonist, she is 100% an amalgamation of my grandmothers, both my paternal and maternal grandparents, because she has this kind of look and this, this presence that's like my mother's mother, but then this attitude, this kind of spitfireness that's definitely my dad's mother. And I just, it was just the voice that immediately came out of her when I started writing. And I was like, yep, it, that's exactly it. And I just kind of leaned into those things. You had something prepared to read from the book. Um, Could you go ahead and read that? Absolutely. So this is actually going to be from the first page. So I think it's a great introduction, but also leans into that idea of that kind of cinematic quality, but also this mythical quality, that storytelling aspect that I love so much that helps frame the novel at the beginning and the end. Peter loved to hear the story of how his father tried to steal the sun. It's the reason the poppies exist, his mother said. Your dad had climbed into the sky and touched the light, actually had his hands gripped around the sun. What did it feel like, Peter asked. Have you ever touched a really hot light bulb, his mom said. But the sun burned his hands. He pulled away and scattered sunlight over the field, causing all these bright poppies to grow. The sun, angry for having been caught, fell that night. 
It falls every night, but that was the first time. It fell and sulked and didn't come back. Your dad gave us these beautiful fields of flowers, but he also brought the darkness. Peter held tight to his bear in the back seat. The promise of darkness didn't scare him, but the wind always made him nervous. He inhaled the scent of the bear's fur like wood and soil. The poppy shone orange along the horizon where flower petals covered the earth like unmelted snowfall. The world pulsed and breathed as it passed through the window into the backseat of the car. The blizzard of orange in the distance cascaded in the breeze. The closer the car came to the poppies, the lower the sun fell. Peter's mom always called it a game, like chicken. They had to make it to the field before the sun set. Thank you. That was wonderful. As soon as you started reading it, I recognized. I'm like, aha, good, good. I was happy you picked that piece. Thank you. What, Life Between Seconds is a meditation on trauma, family, both uh, you know, biological and created, and how we heal after great loss. Can you tell us about what your catalyst was for writing this book? Yeah, so going back to the Madres de la Plaza de Mayo, and I'm watching these women, these strong women who have been doing this every Thursday for decades at this point. And it just got me thinking, what would my mom do if I didn't come home? And it sparked this one moment in the story that's deep, deep into the story. But it's just Sophia sitting there waiting for her daughter to come home. And finally, there's a knock on the door. And that stress and that tension of who could it be? Is it her? Did she lose her key? Does she just not expect us to be awake? Or et cetera, et cetera. And then I was trying to understand how I could frame that story and introduce that story. And there's the creator of the show Weeds. She's the same creator of the show Orange is the New Black. And yeah. I know her name. I just don't know how to pronounce it. So I don't want to say it and be wrong because I don't know if it's Genji Cohen or Genji Cohen. But yeah, yeah. but it's um, she was once talking about the shows she creates and says that she uses upper middle class white women as Trojan horses so that people will be more comfortable learning about the, the side characters and these worlds that they might not initially want to step into. And that's how I thought of Peter. And most writers I know, their first novels generally end up being a veiled biography. And that's how Peter started. He was kind of a veiled version of myself. He was a traveler. He was young. He was in San Francisco, all these things I was. And then eventually it, he became his own person, which was amazing. But he was used as kind of this Trojan horse initially to then allow us to step into Sophia's story, even if you might not have been comfortable learning about loss of a child or learning about a dirty war or learning about all these things that maybe you never knew you had interest in. But by showing the connection to the characters and the relationship between them and having this person that maybe you're more familiar with as the entry point, it then became this, this jumping off point to tell this greater story. Now, two of the protagonists, Peter and Sophia, are unlikely allies, but they're bound together by their grief. And I've seen this a lot in my own life. Do you think that loss and Grief can be a good basis for a friendship or a connection. I do. And I have friends that we've formed relationships out of, out of grief and kind of the, it's, 
Am I allowed to curse on this show? I'll just I'll just try not. Yeah, you're fine. Don't no, you're okay. fine. Yeah, because <laughs> I was going. It's it's kind of the way you know truffles grow out of shit, right? You have this thing that is one of the most coveted sources of food in the world, and it's considered a delicacy, but it grows out of garbage and trash and awful. And yeah. sometimes the greatest relationships you have come from shared awful. Yeah, I totally agree. I I I, like, I love that. I love that analogy too. This episode is sponsored by Culinary Historians of Northern California, a Bay Area educational group dedicated to the study of food, drink, and culture in human history. To learn more about this organization and their work, please visit their website at www.chnorcal.org. I'm very interested in your work as a travel writer. Talk to me about how you became a travel writer. Yeah, you know, I I, I asked that question to somebody recently on LinkedIn. I'm very active on LinkedIn. Uh, and he has this wide growth. He's been doing it for maybe about half the time I've been doing it, but in a different way. And I asked him, I was like, how'd you become a travel writer? And he gives me this, well, I was traveling. I was doing this. I was doing that, blah, blah, blah. And gave me this really big breakdown. And he's like, how did you become a travel writer? And I said, I answered a Craigslist ad. <laughs> And that's, I love that. that it's, it's funny because it's true. And it's so, especially today when Craigslist is not what it was in 2013, where they actually had legitimate right. jobs there. But yeah. I had been traveling at that point. I'd been to, I'd backpacked around South America. I'd done around the world trip. I've lived, I'd lived in Europe. And this travel company was looking for writers who had been to certain countries. It was like Australia, Italy, maybe Japan. And to provide samples. And I had kept a travel blog, not because I wanted to monetize it, but it was the best way I could keep all my friends and family abreast of what I was doing when I was abroad, all in one go, rather than having to write individual emails to everyone. So I just took some stuff from that, sent it into this travel company. They loved it. I started freelancing with them, writing itineraries, writing small articles, giving bits of information about my experience. And then it just grew and grew. And I figured, I figured out how I could monetize it enough to make it my career. And that became my focus. And then in 2017, after four years of freelancing with this company, doing other freelance stuff, they brought me on full time as their travel writer. And it was just this, I mean, it's been a beautiful experience. It was able to work itself out during the pandemic. And it's, it's been my main source of income and my main focus with kind of novelists on the side and it's uh, something that I kind of pride myself on, that ability to, to make money in something that so many people are like, well, how does that happen? How does this? It's like this unique thing that I'm excited about. Now, one question I don't have, I haven't uh, pre-pitched to you, but I just, I got, from the second I first saw you on the Zoom screen, I'm like, this guy's, you know, good looking. He's got a Paul Rudd kind of like <laughs> persona. I, I feel like, you know, like you, you kind of come across very charming. Why hasn't any like a travel show picked you up as like a lead character guy on on the show, like doing your own travel show? Because uh, I could really see you doing that. You know what? That's actually my next step. I'm I'm working to get a travel show in the make, and I'm 
I'm charmed that my Paul Rudness comes through the Zoom because <laughs> you have no idea how often I get that. And I bet I'm you do. Like, no, I, yeah. I immediately thought that. Yeah. There you go. I mean, I'm a Paul Rudd fan, so I'm totally happy about that. Um, my wife and I knew each other in high school, and I make a joke that the only reason she liked me was because this Paul Rudd quality, and she had a crush on when he was Josh and Clueless. So I'm like, oh, there's the tie-in. So yeah. Hey, I mean, he's a great guy. And if you're going to be compared to somebody, that's pretty good. Yeah. Yeah. I could really see you having your own travel show because you got a great voice. You know, you got a great presence. I, I really hope that that happens for you because that seems like a natural thing. Thank you very much. I, I am working on that eagerly. So once it happens, I, you will be the third person I tell after my wife and my parents. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. I hope I hope that I can, I'm looking forward to that day. <laughs> Now you teach creative writing, um, and I want to talk to you a little bit about this because you know writing to me is su such a challenge, and I think a lot of people struggle. I know so many people who are working on novels, who are working on you know getting their writing going. How did you come to teach writing, and what has it been like for you? How how did I come to teach writing? That's a really good question. Uh, there's this one thing I noticed about. I noticed this from the back end. So like now that I teach creative writing and a lot of people will talk about why they want to get an MFA and then they'll say, I want to teach. And the first thing that comes to my head is the fact that if you want to teach, you shouldn't get an MFA because, because MFA programs want to give MFAs to writers, not to teachers. So right. it's kind of this hard ecosystem to navigate, but I'm pretty sure I came to teaching. I mean, I love teaching, but it wasn't the thing that I wanted to do. I wanted to write. And yeah. for any program I know will not hire a teacher unless they have already published, right? right? So, and that might not be every program. It's just the programs that I know of. Yeah. And after I published the uh, Deep Freeze series, I really was interested in teaching, not as the only thing, but just, I love teaching. I love giving back. It also, for me, is a way to constantly re-engage with the fundamentals of writing because my philosophy is know the rules so you can break them. And I learned that the hard way. I have made every wrong decision when it comes to writing and I learned it the hard way. So for instance, the, uh, you know, write what you know, making like doing it too much and being like, oh, well, this isn't writing what I know. This is just regurgitating what I did during my day or, you know, trying to show, not tell, but in the wrong moments. So like I'm explaining why this person is or that the person walks a particular way, but why does that detail matter? If the detail doesn't matter, it shouldn't be in there. And, or even applying to programs and using a templated form letter that doesn't explain why I want this specific program and then being rejected. Like these are just things that these are mistakes that I made. And then I want to show others so they don't have to make those same mistakes. But beyond having made those mistakes and then trying to explain to students that they shouldn't make those mistakes and how to not make those mistakes. It's also about sharing and wanting to share my stories and wanting to let others share theirs and to see how we can make our stories better. What advice do you have to give writers trying to find community the ability to do that? Oh, that is such a great question. And I still have trouble with that one. Uh, community 
is the most important aspect of writing. And it seems so counterintuitive because writing is so solitary, but writing a book or writing short stories, like the act of writing is solitary, but writing a story is not solitary because you're getting it from somewhere, you're finding inspiration, you're actually doing something from which you're taking that inspiration and regurgitating it into something vibrant and new and then trying to show it to somebody to see, am I telling this story the best way possible uh, in a way that's coming across? Because one thing I always say to my students and that I learned in my grad program is that you can't stand next to your reader and whisper your meaning into their ear. So you have to get it all on the page. If it's not on the page, it doesn't matter. And a sense of community, whether it's from, say, you were in a grad program and you hold on to a few people from that grad program to continue sending stories to, or you step out and find libraries are a great place where people might post, uh, you know, having a writing a group to go to, or maybe a reading group to go to. There are forums on Facebook. There are forums on Reddit. If, or you can check out writer, uh, what the Gothers Writing Institute, and and there are so many places, especially online now, that you can reach out to. But a sense of community is necessary. Whether it's meeting once a week, or you just send each other things online. Uh, I know you asked, what could they do? And the research is the only and best information that I could give is just do your research, reach out to friends. If you have any friends that are writers that are complaining about the same issue, create your, create your own group. That's excellent advice. I love that. Thank you. Now, at what point do you think that somebody can call your, themselves a writer? At any point. I mean, really, as long as you're doing it, right? I mean, there are writers who write one book, never write again, but would kill, still call themselves a writer. And there are writers who write nothing but a sentence once a month and still call themselves a writer. And for me, I'm not so precious on the term that I think only published authors can call themselves writers. But I think it helps. I think it personally helps give me the confidence to continue writing. If I call myself a writer, I don't call myself an author. And I think it's because to me, author sounds like I'm only working in one medium, but writer gives me again, that confidence and that bravado of being like, well, I'm, I'm a travel writer and I'm a novelist and I blog or do newsletters or whatever it is. So it's like, I am a writer. And then here are the ways that it trickles down into all these other components. <laughs> I want to ask you another question that's unscripted. So I'm sorry. I, cause I just oh, was really thinking about this when I'm reading the book. But I, I saw echoes of certain authors in your writing that I really enjoyed and people that I really like. Um, I'm a big fan of Ray Bradbury, and I saw this little echoes of Bradbury here and there. And uh, I want to ask you, who are your favorite writers? Who are the writers that really inspire you? Oh, I love that question. And that is such an honor that you found echoes of Ray Bradbury in there. And can I just I just have to tell you this little aside uh, about mm -hmm. Ray Bradbury. One of my favorites, I mean, growing up, he was one of the few authors I would actually read. I got into reading through comic books and Ray Bradbury is kind of like the bridge between comic books and actual stories and, and novels and things. Absolutely. Um, so in 2006 to 2007, I was living in Italy. I was doing a study abroad program and my a family friend was publishing a book and he was really connected to Hollywood and to certain authors just grew up in that area and, and that era. And so he does his book release and Ray Bradbury is there. 
Oh my God. And my grandma, one of the ones who I, uh, you know, modeled Sophia after sat for an hour talking to Ray Bradbury on the couch, but, and she's just like smiling the whole time. And then everybody asked her like, Oh, what did you talk about? And she was like, I don't know, because he was sitting on the left side and she was deaf in her left ear. So she was basically nodding along the entire time. having no <laughs> idea. And the worst part is I wasn't even there because I was really <laughs> studying abroad and nobody told me that this was happening and if i knew ray bradbury was going to be there i would have hopped a plane because like what are, how often would i've had that chance so i'm and then uh, i think it was like a was a year or two later he passed away and i was just like no <laughs> i love that, him he I, I mean he's just exceptional and and there are definitely echoes of ray bradbury uh i mean the the story of his where I always forget the name of it, but I mean, there will be hard rain is one story that always affects me. Uh, but yeah. then the one in which it's actually, this one kind of gets me twice because it was one Juno Diaz. I, I wrote a thesis on Juno Diaz uh, in undergrad and on the brief wondrous life of Oscar Wilde. And it's one of the few books that I've read like four times or, and, and actually was, did it on my own. A couple of times as opposed to like, oh, it was just assigned and assigned and assigned and assigned. Uh, but there's reference to in that book about um, goodness. It's the story in which the the students lock another student. They're bullying a student and they lock them in the closet and there's only like 30 seconds of sunlight. Yes, 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 yes. Yeah. And he doesn't get to see it. And then they're all ashamed. But so that's certainly just always gets me every time I'm writing there's like kind of this undercurrent of that moment in that one brief story but then at the same time through the lens of Juno Diaz in a brief wondrous life of Oscar Wilde so there's layers but then also Catherine Dunn with Geek Love that book just radiated through my soul anything Amy Bender writes uh Nicole Krauss and Daryl Horn which also, I understand I have these deep connections to those three authors because there's often these kind of there's Jewish subtext in there with all three of them. And I find that that really resonates with me as well from the culture I grew up in and, and the way that I kind of tell and hear stories, uh, especially where this kind of there's kind of an oratory to the way I hear it in my head and try to get it down on on paper. Uh, and then Tom Robbins, I love Tom Robbins so much. At the same time, I kind of read his stuff now. I'm like, yeah, you know, some of these things didn't really date well, but at the same time, I just like, there's this whimsy that I love about his work and this sense of fabulism. And that's really where I brought that idea of fabulism into my work. Them and of course, Gabriela Garcia Marquez, where it's like you just speak truth into that magic and all of a sudden nobody can question it. I love, I love all those. Thank you. I love as a librarian, I love all those names and I thank you for sharing that. Yeah. Douglas, what's next for you? So travel writing, I'm still going to continue doing that I'm working on a travel show. So that's obviously at the top of my list, but I also have another book that's going to be released either late this year or early next year the the official publication date is not there yet and it's there are I had a, a professor once who told me that all great writers have an obsession and whenever they write to that obsession they write their best and whenever they stray from that obsession you see them falter a bit and I'm understanding where my obsessions are because that that book is the new book 
is completely different. It's about a completely different subject matter, but it's still about pain and grief and found family and these motifs and themes that are very clear and present in life between seconds. So even though it's told at a different time in a different way, because it's about this new book is about a serial killer in occupied Paris in World War II. And she's using the guise of the chaos of the occupation to find her next victim. She only chooses men and like then, you know, what happens next? Discuss like that. But there are all these similar themes that I'm working with, like the family that she connects with, those people she's trying to protect and that are trying to protect her and the steps that she needs to take to overcome her grief, but also how that grief is is informing the decisions, bad or good, that she does make. This sounds great. I can't wait to read it. This is sounds wonderful. I'm sold. Well, then I'll have to come back too. <laughs> sounds good. Yes, anytime. You're always welcome. Douglas, I want to thank you for being on the podcast. And I, I again, like I just said, hope to see you back here again. Yeah, looking forward to it. with Douglas Weissman. We have a link to his book, Life Between Seconds, in the bio. You can also get it through all major retailers and at all better bookstores. Coming up on Monday is my interview with author, podcaster, Marissa Rothkoff-Bates. She has a podcast called The Secret Life of Cookies, and she is a food writer for the New York Times, Newsweek, and more. I look forward to having you hear my conversation with Marissa. Hope you're all having a wonderful week and have a really good weekend. Hope you get to cook a lot of great stuff, maybe something from one of the cookbook authors we have interviewed on the program. Until then, keep on cooking.